You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The more tools out there we have vacuuming up the internet, the harder it will be to propagate this type of illicit material. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a massive fine being levied against Meta for violating European Union privacy laws. I've got the story of New York taking a stand on AI when it comes to hiring. And later in the show, we're joined by Caleb Barlow from Silite. He's going to grill Ben on a variety of cyber-related policy issues. Make sure you stick around for that. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So mine comes from the New York Times uh, in the technology section by Adam uh, Satteriano. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is about a uh, fine levied against Meta, the parent company of Facebook. It's a record 1.2 billion euro fine, which equates to about $1.3 billion, mm. uh, from the Ireland's Data Protection Commission for a violation of GDPR, uh, the statute that's now been in place in the European Union for about five years. Uh-huh. And as part of this legal finding, Meta has also been ordered to stop transferring data from Facebook users in the United uh, in Europe uh, to the United States. Uh, so this is one of the most uh, significant rulings since the advent of GDPR. Uh, it is the largest fine to have been levied under that statute so far. Um, and it is a, a serious allegation of violating European Union data protection rules. Uh, so just for a little bit of background, uh, these regulators, and I'll talk about in a second why this came out of Ireland, which yeah. is an interesting element uh, of this. Um, the regulators have alleged that Meta failed to comply with a 2020 decision by the European Court of Justice. Um, this was Schrems 2. Mm. Uh, that Facebook data shipped across the Atlantic was not sufficiently protected from American spy agencies. Uh, so we've had we've tried to codify these data sharing arrangements between the United States and the European Union. Right, uh, makes the internet run more smoothly. Uh, it's good for business. It's good for transactions. Uh, we don't want to have siloed social networks where. 
Um, you have a Facebook Europe and a Facebook United States. It wouldn't be as fun or as interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that the European Union, uh, I think with relatively good reason, doesn't trust our data protection practices. And their best evidence is some of our uh, draconian or allegedly draconian surveillance measures. Mm-hmm. So they've mentioned some of what we talked about on this podcast just last week, uh, the collection of data under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Right. Or from something like X-Key Score, which was done pursuant to Executive Order um, 12333, known in the industry as 12333. Um, With this type of evidence, the European Court of Justice has said that um, we need to have proper measures in place uh, before we can have this type of data sharing. Uh, So the Biden administration has been in negotiation with their counterparts on the European Union to try and come up with a data sharing agreement that can satisfy some of the concerns uh, that were raised in Schrems 2. Uh, but those are all preliminary. That hasn't been codified yet. Uh, and it's very possible that once that that is codified, and we've talked about some of the provisions there, including one that gives um, non-U.S. persons kind of a right of uh, legal action against the United States for uh, allegedly misusing data. Mm-hmm. Um that has yet to be enacted, and we're so we're in this kind of gray area where we know we want to have a borderless method of data transfer. Uh, we have the European Union being distrustful of the United States and its surveillance practices, and now a company like Meta, um, who wants to foster free and open data exchanges, being held accountable with a really significant uh, penalty here, 1.2 billion euros. Yeah. Um, so, to answer what I know is going to be your next natural question, <laughs> where does this go from here? Uh, Meta is starting an appeals process, so it is unclear if they're actually going to uh, pay these fines. Um, this is going to potentially be a lengthy legal process, and the entire case could be rendered moot if we come up with a data-sharing agreement with the European Union that satisfies uh, the EU, the European Court of Justice, and Max Schrems. Uh, an Austrian uh, activist who has been the plaintiff in all of these lawsuits. So it's just a really interesting, groundbreaking decision uh, and certainly caught my eye. It's interesting that Meta seems to be the the frequent flyer here when it comes to these violations, right? I mean, both in both in the EU and in the US, they they just they make these agreements, they get fined, they agree, and then they don't seem to stick to their agreement. They, they keep coming back. They keep being brought back to the table to uh, time and time and time again. Is this just their business? This is just the way they do business? I think it's the way they do business. I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but one, like, they're an easy target. A lot of people just do not like Mark Zuckerberg and think Facebook has been bad for society. Yeah. Uh, they also have... Uh, a president of global affairs named Nick Clegg. Okay. Nick Clegg used to be the head of the Liberal Democratic Party in um, the UK Parliament. Huh. Now, the Liberal Democratic Party in the UK isn't what we would define as liberal Democrats here. They're mm. kind of a centrist, more libertarian-leaning uh, party. And they were in a coalition government uh, with the conservatives under David Cameron. There was a lot of, like— 
residual anger for the liberal Democrats being part of that coalition um, and helping that government institute austerity practices. So that created kind of some bad buzz around Nick Clegg, Hmm. uh, especially just in kind of left-leaning circles. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... I don't want to say that that's the reason we're having these, uh, you know, legal decisions. It's certainly not. Um, but I do think if we're trying to determine why Meta has become such a target, I think that could at least be a factor. Hmm. Now, you mentioned Ireland. What's the significance there? So, yeah, the Ireland issue of this is is kind of fascinating to me. Uh, there's a provision in GDPR that requires regulators in the country where a company has its European Union headquarters to enforce GDPR. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just happens to be that Ireland is the regional headquarters of Meta, TikTok, Twitter, Apple, and Microsoft. Right. Um, And because of the way GDPR is structured, they are the ones handling these lawsuits. I I would guess it's the similar role that Delaware plays um, in our legal system where there are maybe clear sets of of precedents. You You know what to expect from... Uh, the judges in these cases, so it might Mm -hmm. be advantageous for that or for tax reasons uh, for these companies to have their European Union headquarters in Ireland. Right. Um, And so uh, Ireland has uh, kind of taken a disproportionate role in in meeting out these these fines. Uh, I think Irish authorities are kind of frustrated with this arrangement. They had been overruled by a board made up of representations from several EU countries uh, on this particular ruling. Um, The board insisted on imposing this fine, uh, which is not something that Irish authorities had tried to to enforce themselves. Um, And I think this worries Ireland because they want to have these companies still uh, very present in the European Union and still headquartered in in Ireland. It's a source of jobs. It's a source of economic growth. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that that is a very interesting angle of this story for sure. $1.3 billion. uh, Can we calibrate that? or or Have we reached the point where we're talking about real money with a company the size of Meta? I mean... It's a pretty hefty amount of money, even for a company like uh, Meta. Yeah. And these fines start to pile up. I mean, you a billion here, a billion there, it starts right. to add up to real money. <laughs> right. um, they were just fined uh, by regulators under the GDPR in January, $390 million, hmm. um, for forcing users to accept personalized ads as a condition for using Facebook, which is a vi- uh, violation of GDPR. Um, they were fined last November for a separate data leak. That was $265 million. So it's eventually going to have its impact on Meta's bottom line, enough that they're going to have incentive t- uh, to try and change some of the policies that are causing uh, these lawsuits to be successful. Um, so some of that is going to be them working with uh, our government, working with EU authorities to come up with uh, the type of safe harbor privacy shield provisions um, that can pass muster on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. And so I think they're going to be, uh, are they're at least going to try to be heavily involved in that process. Do you have any sense on where the Biden administration is with that? And, and is, is that on a, a good, healthy trajectory? Uh, 
it's still being negotiated. So the preliminary or the outlines of a deal, the preliminary agreement was announced last year by President Biden and uh, the president of the European Commission. Mm. Um, But the deal is still being negotiated, finalized. We don't have necessarily a timeline on that could be several months. It could be a year. I just think it's it's uncertain um, how far they are from coming up with something final. Uh, so I think in the meantime, it means there's a significant legal risk for some of these big tech companies in continuing to move data between the U.S. and the European Union uh, because we are kind of in this legal limbo until not only we have a new agreement, but that new agreement um, doesn't get invalidated by the European Court of Justice. Uh, well, and- so we have to go through those two steps before these companies can be sure um, that they can uh, transfer data across the Atlantic without uh, being subject to these risks. What about the very real possibility that um, President Biden does not serve a second term and someone else comes in who has very different ideas about these things? To what degree would this be subject to the the desires and whims of a new administration? Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. President DeSantis or Trump or whomever could come in and burn this up on day one if they wanted to. I see. Um, and that would have an impact. I mean, it would have a practical impact, but it would also— um, you know, me. It, it doesn't make a difference in terms of what how the European courts enforce GDPR. So, in the absence of that agreement, um, we're going to see crackdowns on data transfers, uh, and that's going to hurt the internet. It's going to hurt the economies of both the U.S. and and the European Union. Um, but it's it is certainly something that could happen. I mean, if there are ideological differences with this approach, right? Um, then we could certainly see it invalidated with a new presidential administration. Nothing here is is etched into stone. Yeah. So it is an area of potential volatility. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of volatility and a lot of risk. Hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Um, my story this week also comes from the New York Times. This is an article written by Steve Lohr, uh, and it's called A Hiring Law Blazes a Path for AI Regulation. Uh, and this uh, is about um, New York City, uh, who is adopting rules that uh, put some limits on how companies are using AI when hiring people. Um, this caught my eye because... Um, I think we've heard a lot about uh, algorithmic filtering when it comes to right. job applications, right? Like the first, uh, the the first level you got to get by if you want anybody to look at your resume is the algorithm, right? Whether or not we call that AI or or not, uh, you know, is that a I don't know. Is that simple filtering or, you know, let's... Uh, <laughs> you got to weed out the applications that you're not good, that no human would ever accept and might as well have machines do it. Right. But the flip side is that that can put some people at a disadvantage. It can also put people at an advantage who know how to game an AI or game some sort of automated system. Uh, you know, you can put stuff in your resume, check all the boxes in your resume to get to that second level and then rely on your wit and guile to explain why, well, I didn't actually get that degree. But right. <laughs> but, if, I- but if you didn't list the degree on the... Resume, you never would have gotten past that step anyway. I mean, this will be familiar for a lot of people who have used automated resume collection systems, including Mm -hmm. uh, with the federal government, USA Jobs, where they will list what the requirements are for the position. You don't just submit any resume. You make sure that those keywords are in there. If they're looking for someone with five years of experience in XYZ, you put in the first line of your resume, 
five years of experience in XYZ because you want to make it past that filter. Right, right. So this article lays out some of the requirements here. It requires companies who are using AI software and hiring to notify candidates that an automated system is being used. It requires companies to have independent auditors check the technology annually for bias, and candidates can request and be told what data is being collected and analyzed, and companies will be fined for violations. Uh, how does that sound in principle there, Ben? In principle, it sounds great. Um, it applies to any companies that have workers in New York City, um, which is a lot of different companies. Yeah. Uh, so even if it's a multinational corporation, but they have uh, employees who work in New York City, uh, it would apply to them as it relates to those employees in New York City. Um, so it certainly seems uh, promising on first blush, um, but as we always say, the devil is in the details. <laughs> right. I think a lot of... Uh, there's kind of two sources of opposition to this law. There are uh, advocates who've said that this doesn't go far enough, that it was watered down. Uh, this was a statute that was passed in the waning days of the Bill de Blasio administration mm. towards the end of 2021. And in the process over the past couple of years, it's been whittled down. Some of the stronger enforcement provisions were uh, were taken out. Mm. Um, and then there are those in the business community who say, of course, that this is unnecessarily burdensome. Um, and that, uh, you know, AI is, is an important tool or whatever you want to call it, whether it's, uh, AI or just algorithms is an important tool for expediting the review of, uh, of applicants. And this is going to cut against our bottom line. So there are, there are, there is a lot of opposition on both sides here. Yeah. This article quotes, uh, someone named Alexandra Gibbons, who is the president of the Center for Democracy and Technology, which is a policy and civil rights organization, uh, and they say what could have been a landmark law was watered down to lose effectiveness. Uh, and the, the article goes on to say that the law defines an automated employment decision tool as technology used to substantially assist or replace discretionary decision-making. And the rules adopted by the city appear to interpret that phrasing narrowly so that AI software will require an audit only if it is the lone or primary factor in a hiring decision or used to overrule a human so, yeah, that seems yeah, pretty I mean, narrow. That is really defining it narrowly. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's very hard to prove that AI would be the only reason, uh, the on, the primary or loan or primary factor um, that a hiring decision is made. That's going to be very hard to prove. Yeah. So I wonder to what degree, given that, to what degree is this an effective tool? Do, do we look at this as a as a first step, as a way that the the breezes are blowing or— is it, will this ultimately be ineffective? I think it is a first step. It's laying the groundwork for similar statutes in other uh, states that are interested in this type of regulation. Mm -hmm. I think this the way this law is being interpreted now, the way the regulations are written, it is going to be reg uh, relatively toothless because most organizations use automated software for that sort of filtering effect. Right. Uh, but it's still a human making final hiring decisions. And that would be a defense against any potential fine levied by the city. You could mm -hmm. say, uh, this wasn't the primary reason we hired this person. Uh, we hired them for these reasons. We just used um, 
this AI software to filter out applications that we're going to go to the bottom of the pile anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I worry that this does render this law relatively toothless. I think even the activists will admit it's better to have uh, this law in the books than to have nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, at least there's a skeptical eye on the use of AI software in, in hiring or algorithmic software in hiring. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean, I do think the rules adopted by the city will limit the applicability of this law and uh, its enforcement mechanism for sure. The other thing they noted is um, the law is looking out for discrimination. So there have been a lot of allegations. uh, This is well supported by the data Mm. that certain kinds of groups are disproportionately disadvantaged uh, in the hiring process through the use of these algorithms. In the law, they mention uh, bias by sex, race, and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as Ms. Givens points out, it does not bar discrimination against older workers or those with disabilities. Hmm. Um, and that uh, is kind of a blind spot to, to the civil rights of uh, of those individuals. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's another shortcoming of, of the statute here. Yeah, interesting. All right, again, well, we will have a link to that article in the show notes. It's from the New York Times, uh, written by Steve Lohr. Uh, Again, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, we're going to do something uh, a little different for us this week. Uh, We've invited Caleb Barlow to join us. He is the CEO of an organization called Silete, has a lot of experience in cyber with policy issues, uh, has run uh, some large organizations, some large companies, uh, has some really interesting uh, perspectives to share with us. So uh, let's welcome Caleb Barlow to the show. Well, let's jump in here, Caleb. So I know you had some topics you wanted to cover with uh, both of us, but mostly Ben. Uh, so why don't we kick things well, off? I think you can weigh in, too. <laughs> I, I'm ready for it. Throw them at me, Caleb. Let's well, see how this well, goes. So, yeah, I want to throw down a little bit here. Like, as an operator uh, listening to this show, one of the things that, you know, oftentimes comes up, and I think you guys do a great job of kind of sarcastically rolling your eyes a little bit, you know, at least to the extent you can on a podcast when, you know, Oh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse (laughs) Act. Let's talk about that nightmare again, right? You know, Ben, you talked recently about an opportunity you had to influence some legislation in Maryland. And, you know, I've had the opportunity when I was working for large companies to, you know, lobby on Capitol Hill and go and testify in front of Congress and 
even had the unique opportunity once to testify in front of the United Nations. And oh, wow. the point is you can get, you can influence these things. You can get things changed. Now it takes forever. Yes. But you know, what I wanted to do is throw out some of these things we deal with and really poke at, well, what would it take? Could it even be done to change some of these things down the road? Let's do it. So let's start with our good friend, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, one, of our, one of our favorites, right? And I think the challenge for cybersecurity researchers in particular is, I, I don't know what the date of this law was, but I mean, I'm pretty sure it dates back to when we were all kids and uh, watching yeah, it was know, movies actually, like war games, right? Yeah, it actually <laughs> dates back to the year I was born. I do not want to age myself, so I'm not going to reveal <laughs> that year, but I am as old as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So it, it's old. So okay, I was well, probably in my 20s. Yeah, yeah so Dave and, Dave and I were a little older, but uh, we'll go with that. Um, you know, but the, the challenge with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right, is you get into this kind of, um, you know, exceeds authorized access definition. Ah, uh, yes. And, and also, you know, here's the other thing. What's a computer nowadays, right? Like, you know, it was one thing when we were all worried, you know, kind of using the plot of war games, right, of, you know, Matthew Broderick breaking into the, uh, you know, the computer that simulated a, you know, nuclear holocaust, right? And I think we all kind of get probably shouldn't do that. But the challenge we have nowadays is that, first of all, you know, we not only have computers, we have automobiles, we have devices, we have thermostats, all connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, we need to be able to test these things. And, you know, I can give you a few examples of where this is really challenging. Like I had a client years ago that was building a, a, a programmable logic controller. I won't get into what it controlled, but let's just say it controlled really important things. And they'd had these things out in the market for decades, and they had no idea where they were. But more importantly, you know, their big concern was they had lots of these things out there with the default username and password. Mm. And on one hand, bad guys can scan for that all day long. All they have to do is, you know, go use Shodan, figure out where they are, and then go try the default password. On the other hand, security researchers are forbidden from doing that, or at least in the definition we all accept is what's the law. So what do you think would be required to update the Computer Fraud Abuse Act? I think we would need something uh, like the bill that was proposed about a decade now uh, by a couple of representatives, one of them, Zoe Lofgren, who represents Silicon Valley. Uh, and that is to grant special dispens uh, disposition or dispensation to researchers. Of course, this uh, spans back to the tragic Aaron Swartz story. Yes. So, so why don't we talk about that for sure. a second? Because I think that's a really, really important context of where this law has gone particularly awry. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to get into the the story of it, or uh, I mean, I can. Well, I, can I mean, the, the basic the basic issue here, and keep me honest here on the story, was you had a computer researcher that was pursued aggressively by the Justice Department, and I believe the school he was going to as well, because yep, MIT, he had gone yep. a little too far, and yes. he ended up unfortunately taking his own life. Right. I mean, I would. I don't use this word lightly. He was being harassed by uh, the Department of Justice. Are they making an example of him? They were making an example of him. Um, and he was doing what I think most of us would agree was scholarly research. Um, and I think him taking his own life wasn't necessarily the natural extension of what the Justice Department had done, but it was certainly part of a broader story. Um, so I think there's... 
that was really the impetus around these proposed laws. Um, You had a government that was bringing disproportionate charges against somebody because the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is far too broad. Um, They're using language in the law um, that's very difficult to interpret, that was drafted in a pre-digital age, and throwing the book at this person for reasons that, you know, I I don't want to... cast dispersions on the Department of Justice, but I, I'm i not entirely sure they were the most legitimate reasons. Hmm. Um, so what would you need to do to amend the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Well, for, So do you imagine like some sort of license for computer researchers? Yeah. Yeah, it would be something like that. Um, or uh, you could just exclude basic terms of service violations uh, from the CFAA, Uh, for individuals that are engaged in good faith uh, academic pursuits, research, uh, who are doing um, work trying to protect network security. Um, It wouldn't be easy. Uh, There are financial interests that are uh, aligned against this. A lot of uh, some of the big tech companies and just some of the big manufacturers really like the gate-up, gate-down approach. Uh, The Supreme Court took in the Van Buren case for the CFAA uh, because it just— it makes their lives easier when there's litigation. Uh, it's it's a much simpler standard for them to try to adjudicate. Uh, so there are reasons that they are interested in maintaining the status quo. I also don't think this is, and just to get back to, to an earlier point, I don't think this is something that you could just go into Congress and adopt this change overnight. Like there's a lack of understanding. It's been 10 years since we had the Aaron Swartz situation. Mm-hmm. Uh Congress, the natural order of things is inertia. Uh, so how would you actually inspire some type of change like this? I think that really is uh, an interesting question here. Well, well, you know, one of the things we have seen, though, and, you know, this is more your swim lane than mine, but we have seen kind of updates and clarification from the Justice Department on what they're willing to prosecute. And I think, you know, kind of taking a little bit of a step back to say, you know, some of these kind of obscure use cases like, oh, you know, the uh, your company said that the systems at work are only for use at work and you happen to be on Facebook. Right. Um, we're not going to prosecute you because of that, right? I think some clarification has occurred there, but, you know, there's certainly a need to get much more specific, especially now that, you know, what is a computer, right? right. And right. <laughs> it's everything nowadays, right? So, you know, What's unauthorized access to a thermostat? I, right. I don't know what that looks like in a lot of cases. In my house, that's just my wife touching it. But yes. <laughs> and the bride, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, that would work in my household. Oh, boy. Especially oh boy. like the pool heater, right? Yeah. That's unauthorized access. I'm coming after you with CFAA. We're going to get in but, so much trouble for this, but yes. Yeah. yeah. But what about, um, I mean, doesn't that sort of make the current situation that we're up to the whims of any particular set of people who are in charge of the Justice Department? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that the Supreme Court justices brought up in the Van Buren case, uh, the majority of justices were talking about this parade of horribles where you would have political prosecutions based on uh, really incidental intrusions into somebody's network. And the opposing justices said, well, you know, that's an exaggerated parade of horribles. The Justice Department has instituted these prosecutorial policies. We're not going to prosecute for some of these edge cases. 
that is up to the whims of individuals in the Justice Department. And whatever your political persuasion, think of the, you know, your foremost political enemy winning the presidency, being able to appoint an attorney general uh, and a deputy attorney general and all sorts of positions in the Department of Justice, and imagine that person getting to have prosecutorial discretion. The only way to take that away uh, from the Department of Justice is to pass a statute in Congress. Um, So I just think you can't rely on the Justice Department to make uh, what you would consider favorable prosecutorial discretion decisions, uh, because those are by nature, indefinite. We have changes in administration. But, but the point is, like, I think the point you're making is that this is probably due for clarification, and there probably is a middle ground of how we could get there um, by being a little more specific on, you know, what these educational and research pursuits look like. Right, right. So so your whole point on prosecutorial, prosecutorial discretion brings up, you know, another one of my favorite laws to talk about, which is, you know, the False Claims Act, which ah, interestingly yes. enough goes back to the Civil War. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is, there's a couple of very interesting things about using this law to prosecute cyber crimes. And, and you know, what this is really being used for is to say, hey, um, XYZ company, you didn't have adequate security controls in place when you were selling or, you know, uh, portraying goods to the U.S. government in their purchasing process. Right, right. right. Now, what is most interesting about this is, first of all, this was obviously written way before computers existed. Um, The second thing, though, is it has a lot of teeth, including very strong whistleblower provisions and things like that. But, you know, as much as the government is touting this as how they're going to, you know, kind of enforce that everybody has the proverbial fire alarms installed and, you don't get to be a victim if, you know, the fire alarms weren't working uh, or the sprinklers weren't working. You know, on the other hand, there's been almost no prosecutions under this law as much as it's being touted as a tool out there. So what, what's your kind of thought on this, both from the perspective of how old it is, but also, you know, is this even a, is this a hammer in search of a nail? So a couple of things on how old it is. Uh, I can do you one better than the False Claims Act. I mean, the uh, law at issue. I, I don't know. You tell me. The law at issue in the Apple v. FBI case in 2015 was based on the All Writs Act, which was enacted in 1789. Uh, so that makes the uh, the False Claims Act seem modern by comparison. <laughs> That's just amazing. It is. It is amazing. I mean, the fact that we were adjudicating a dispute between our law enforcement agency and one of the four most big tech companies in the world based on a revolutionary era statute um, is really silly. I mean, if you just step back and think about it, like if you were to explain that to somebody who had never studied law, it would seem particularly ridiculous. Um, I think the government has used the False Claims Act more as a weapon to recover money that it thinks it's entitled to. Uh, And the fact that somebody who sues under the False Claims Act, um, not only does the government get to recover money, but depending on the circumstances, the individual or the party suing also gets a portion of that money. Uh, I do think it's an incentive structure that could be promising uh, if if we want to hold companies that don't have proper cyber hygiene accountable. Um, But, you know, I I worry about it. I don't worry about it as much that it's outdated, just that 
we're applying it in sort of an arbitrary way um, that doesn't necessarily fit modern circumstances. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the more interesting things with this, right, is that, you know, we're reaching a point in kind of our cyber history, if you will, where we understand now what good looks like in terms of cyber hygiene. And, right. and, you know, and in contrast, we really know what bad looks like. So, you know, much like the analog of, you know, the fire alarms and the sprinklers need to work if you own a building, you know, if you don't have basic endpoint protection, if your network isn't segmented, um, you know, if you don't have security logging turned on and you're a company of any size, you should probably, you know, if you're a victim, it's your own fault at right, that point, right? right? And, you know, what I think is interesting, both in the usage of the False Claims Act, as well as even things like HIPAA, where, you know, you do see fines under HIPAA, but the fines are really, really, really small. Right, You know, right. you find a multi-billion dollar hospital of $10,000 right. because they didn't have a tool in place. They're nominal right? damages. Uh, exactly, yeah. right? Like, it seems to me like this is an area, and, and maybe this happens on the civil side of things, where the law needs to catch up to basically hold people accountable where they've knowingly done nothing. Right. I think there are also better ways to do that. Um, you could do that. This is the False Claims Act is part of like a sticks approach. And I do think there's some promise in a carrots approach. I've seen this done at the state level um, where there's some sort of liability shield for a mm. company that has in good faith tried to institute proper security practices. Now, that leads to potentially a lot of litigation. Uh, you have uh, expert witnesses for both sides arguing about what best practices are and whether that satisfies whatever standard the state legislature comes up with. Um, it also, it, it's not very equitable uh, since most of the organizations that can afford um, to ensure compliance uh, aren't your your standard mom and pop shops. So with those caveats aside, I, not to, you know, Throw in our, the name of our podcast there. But with those uh, <laughs> caveats aside, I do think that approach potentially offers more promise. It's less punitive, um, and it is potentially providing an incentive structure and could cut down on litigation, uh, which is a win-win for everybody. And I say so, that So as, maybe switch that one more to the positive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Dave, Dave, are we ready to throw Ben a tough one? Oh god. Oh yeah, let's I've been waiting my I, whole life. I mean life. those are two so, those are two softballs, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, you're just yeah. teeing right, me so up. I've saved I've saved this one for you. And See, they, Ben, this is why I brought Caleb on the show because his knowledge of this stuff far exceeds my own. So uh so we're bringing out the big guns for you here, Okay. Ben. Right. Here comes a really <laughs> tough one, right? Oof. All right, so, let's do this. <laughs> child pornography is obviously bad. I yes. think we can all agree on that. And, We're all on the same page. Yes. You know, the, the challenge with child pornography laws is they prohibit, you know, disseminating it, but even storing it. Right. And this is a case where, you know, kind of um, some inadvertent consequences have occurred. So if you're a security company mm -hmm. that recognizes that oftentimes bad guys work through images. Right. And that a lot of bad things can happen in images, not just child pornography, but lots of other things can happen in that images. That could subject you to legal liability of, Correct. to some extent. So, yeah. so what's happened in this case is, although the tooling exists to do things well beyond facial recognition, but to understand what's really going on in an image, where did this image come from? Is it potentially copyrighted? Is it from someone else? There is a lot of reservation about doing any security work around anything 
that has anything to do with an image because you are going to inadvertently collect child pornography, especially if you're doing things like dark web image collection. So for example, let's say you're a company that's contracted with a few banks to go out and look for places where people are selling stolen checks or stolen credit cards. Oftentimes those things will be advertised on the dark web with pictures of the image of the bank, the image of the details, the image of the credit card number. And a lot of security researchers and companies are scared to death of grabbing that because they know that their collection is inadvertently going to also grab child pornography. Right. You know, so this is a tough one because I can see both sides of it, but we are handicapping our ability to solve a lot of other crimes because we don't want to accidentally be storing child pornography. Can we just get into the politics of this for a second before sure. getting to the merits of it? Mm. I-, I told you this was not going to be an easy one. <laughs> it's not an easy one. Did you watch the uh, confirmation hearings for now Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson? I did not. They, I, I am not, unlike, unlike others on this podcast, I am not a SCOTUS nerd. Yes. So as a proud SCOTUS nerd, I uh, yes. spent an inordinate amount of time watching the lines of questioning. And the Republican members pilloried her because she was a district court judge. And in her sentencing, the allegation was that she issued light sentences for child pornographers, that there were certain mandatory sentences and that she would always either be on the low side of it or she would depart from uh, whatever the sentencing recommendation was. Hmm. What she tried to explain during the hearings is that possession laws are outdated uh, because you used to add counts of possession based on the number of images that were collected, which made sense when you like actually had to go out and collect images or put a certain number... In the days of film. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about files, uh, and let's say you download one zip file that you unknowingly realize, uh, eventually realize has thousands and thousands of images... They wanted to, ex- uh, the prosecutors wanted to expand sentences based on the number of images. Uh, and she basically said that, that that was an outdated view of the law, that wasn't properly reflected of the digital age. And she got pilloried for it. I mean, for a little while, I thought that was going to be problematic for her confirmation. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And I actually happen to think that she's right on the merits of this, uh, but the result is that you are giving people who have been either have been convicted or have pled guilty to having possession of child pornography, you are lessening those sentences. Uh, so it it is a really difficult issue. Uh, you know, I you always want to be on the side of. Um, researchers and uh, people who have a good have a good faith objective to protect security. Um, well, here, here's the other side of this, right? If these researchers do inadvertently find this, they can get it to law enforcement, and maybe something can be done about it. the The problem today is no one wants to scan for this stuff. No one wants to touch it. So, you know, part of my worry in this is there could be lots of places where this these images exist that no one's going to categorize or know because no one wants to look for it. Right. I mean, that's that's an area where you could see real legislative action. Where so you, are we talking about like a, I don't know, like a good Samaritan kind of thing? You know, you're, someone falls ill on an airplane and so they say, is there a doctor in the house? And a doctor helps the person. You know, that doctor has certain protections under like good Samaritan rules, right? 
that doctor did not set out to do medical work when they got on that plane. Similarly, if a researcher stumbles across something and does the right thing by alerting law enforcement or whatever, do there need to be some sort of protections in place if that researcher can show in good faith what they were up to? Am I making any sense? Yeah, I mean, it that would seems be, to make a ton of sense. It would be a kind of liability shield where uh, if within a certain amount of time uh, you came across images and properly reported them to law enforcement, you would have a complete shield of liability. Mm. Um, uh, you still might see organizations fearful. You know, let's say you possessed, the, you unknowingly possessed the image and you didn't report it uh, within the requisite time frame to law enforcement and you were still subject to civil and criminal penalties that might still disincentivize you to uh, engage in this type of research. But I think that would be a step in the right direction. What if I'm I an mean, AI that- company and I'm vacuuming up every single image yeah. on the internet uh, and I'm doing it in an automated way and there is no, as we <laughs> we talk about over and over again, there's no way I can do this at scale and look at every, have a human look at every image to make sure it's nothing objectionable uh, do they deserve any sort of shielding or do they get what's coming to them because it's too much to do at scale? That is a great question. <laughs> that th- is a great question. I don't want to bring up another elephant in the room, but that gets into some Section 230 stuff for me. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, I think most big tech platforms currently do a pretty good job of rooting out the absolute smut on the internet. Right. And all of, this, all of that is done through algorithms. Uh, and one of the purposes behind Section 230 is we don't want to punish a Twitter or a Google uh, for its effort to root out smut on the internet because, you know, they missed one or two images. Right. Um, that's one of the main justifications of that Section 230 liability shield. Um, Well, and I think this is the type of thing of, you know, what Dave highlights here is exactly where we're headed, right? Where you're going to have these massive tools that are vacuuming up all kinds of data, you know, and and you can add AI on top of this to try to detect what's going on. Um, I mean, there are tools out there that are very good at determining, you know, is this a is this explicit material or is this just an advertising site for underwear, right? right, I mean, Mm. believe it or not, those tools actually exist and they're, from what I understand, the efficacy is quite high. Mm. Um, But, you know, you're going to occasionally have a failure or two and, you know, maybe there's some level of liability shield here that could be developed because, you know, I think this is not just about protecting the researchers. I think something like this is also recognizing that the more tools out there we have vacuuming up the internet, the harder it will be to propagate this type of illicit material. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I've I wonder too, for example, and uh, I mean, this is an edge case, so let's take it as such, but and any of us are out there poking around on the internet and we accidentally, innocently accidentally stumble across an objectionable image, Right. And this, to, like, this used to happen a lot more in the early days of the internet when you were poking around image folders, you know, before the web and all that kind of stuff. You go, oh, what's in here? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to see that. Um, but the very act of viewing an, a, an image, even accidentally, means that image is on your computer. And you're breaking the law. 
but you wouldn't have known you were breaking the law until you downloaded the image and you viewed it. Now, I don't know that anyone has ever been prosecuted for accidentally stumbling upon an image or not, but you see where I'm going where there's kind of a catch-22 here. There's a, there's a lack of nuance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why possession shouldn't be a strict liability crime. Mm. Uh, and it, when we're talking about child pornography, I mean, it should be they're in the legal parlance, and this is going to annoy both of you, uh, but you should <laughs> absolutely have a mens rea requirement where there's some sort of intentionality. Uh, you have to have a criminal state of mind. Well, um, and let's face it, too. There's also a big difference between I accidentally viewed it once, and I viewed it, I viewed it 20 more times, and I distributed it. Right, right exactly. And the computer's going to know that, too. Right. Not right. only is the computer going to know that, but, like, our legal system is well set up to make those determinations. Is this, you know, was this somebody who accidentally stumbled upon an image, deleted it, reported it to law enforcement, et cetera? Or is this somebody uh, who, yeah, was distributing it and opening the file repeatedly? Our legal system adjudicates those types of issues all the time to determine a critical state of uh, a criminal state of mind. Mm. Uh, so I think it would be well within its capabilities to do that in these types of cases. All right, well, let, let's talk about something where there are no laws today. Ooh, but okay, it's an edge case where. There's a lot of research going on. So, you know, one of the best ways today to disrupt adversaries is to hack back. Right, hack and, back. And of course, you know, let's face it, amongst, you know, listeners here, this is happening quite actively today. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not talking so much about somebody breaking into the bad guy's system and, you know, kind of traditional hacking. But where this is happening today is, oh, maybe I run a cloud service and I see that a few adversaries are using my cloud service. I'm not going to turn it off. I'm going to watch what they're doing and gather as much intelligence as I can and basically provide their infrastructure. Or in some cases, it may involve direct adversarial engagement where, you know, maybe I'm a researcher and I'm in forums and I'm pretending to be a researcher and I'm providing help and guidance uh, all in exchange for learning more about what these people are doing. And, you know, in many cases, in fact, I would love to say in most cases, you know, this is being done and that data is being shared with law enforcement or other threat intel researchers. But I, I think this is another area where there's just a lot of loosey-goosey stuff going on right now because at the end of the day, you know, kind of the, the legal standard of this is, are the bad guys based halfway around the world really going to come back and sue you? Probably not. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a whole list of potential laws that are getting violated in these cases. And, you know, I think this is an area where as this type of function grows, we probably need to establish some guidelines and or, you know, back to our comment on maybe some level of licensure of who's allowed to do this type of work and why. Yeah, there have been academics who've put out papers on, like, coming up with a legal framework for hacking back uh, cyber self-defense, if you will. I remember one of them, I'm trying to remember exactly where I read this, compared it to a principle in... Um, uh, I believe it's in criminal law called the shopkeeper's privilege, where if somebody steals something, or if you suspect that somebody's uh, stolen something in your store, um, actually, I think it's probably tort law. Um, don't quote me on that. But if somebody <laughs> if somebody steals something in your store, you have the right, and, and you reasonably suspect it, you have the right to search them on their way out without being implicated for something like false imprisonment. Mm. Um, and our legal mm. system, through common law, through years of precedent, has 
well-established that exception. So your defense of false imprisonment from detaining someone would be this shopkeeper's privilege. Maybe you have something like that. You can have an affirmative defense for hacking that you were doing. It was an act of cyber self-defense. I think our legal system could uh, establish either through case law or by statute some type of framework where um, if you are sued for some type, type of intrusion to another network, you'd at least have an affirmative defense saying, I was doing this for cyber self-defense, or this this wasn't uh, hacking back as an aggressor. I'm not trying to propagate the Wild West here. Uh, I am legitimately in, interested in protecting myself and, and my network. Um, yeah, I actually think the more important thing with this isn't even so much being worried about entering into the legal system if somebody gets caught doing it. I think it's the court of public opinion that uh, often yes. doesn't realize that this type of activity goes on. And, you know, when you read a lot of these, like, you know, big takedowns from the Justice Department, you know, there's two things that always enter your mind. One, how did they pull that off? Right. And, you know, I think they've started to reveal a little bit more that, you know, some of these actions involve a little bit of offense. But the second thing is there's always an acknowledgement that, oh, and partners were involved. And, of course, none of the partners are mentioned, which is what you wanted to have, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, yeah. right. But but I do think, you know, what I worry about is, and I think what the security research community worries about, is not so much, you know, ending up in legal trouble, but this ending up getting slanted sideways by a reporter that maybe doesn't understand the full context, and it ending up in some sort of, you know, hit piece on a security company when the public just doesn't understand the efficacy and how much of this type of activity is actually going on. Right, and would have no understanding of the context of it. That these aren't. Right. This isn't just like a digital vigilante doing this for the hell of it. Like this is a some. Type well, those of, people are out there too. They're out but, there too. You know. Yeah, but mm. in these circumstances, it's somebody with a good faith interest. Is this a, a digital stand your ground law? Oh God, let's not oh, go there. Gosh. Yeah. Well, you know. Okay, I mean, the funny thing is, Dave. There is a certain aspect to that, right? Yeah. I mean, right. I say it the, half jokingly. No, but I, I actually think there's something to this, right? I mean, the reality is when you're working incident response, more often than not, you go in, something bad's happened, you explain it to the executives, and you move on, right? Mm -hmm. However, what security researchers love is that, you know, one in a hundred client that's like, oh, hell no, not on my watch. <laughs> right. Whatever you need to do to figure out who these people are, you know, oh, you want to you want to let this attack keep going? I'm fine with that. Bring in all your tools, all your research, all the logging. Let's go figure this out, right? Yeah. And the <laughs> reality is- Bra Braveheart style, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. The reality is though, guys, like that's where the needle really moves is when you run across that client that's willing to say, not on my watch and take a little risk. Right. But as a security researcher, to what, to what degree are you willing to take on that risk? And what degree 100%. is that, is that risk and liability transferred to you? And just like you said, it's not just legal liability. It's right. You don't want to be on the cover of, you don't you want know. to be on 60 minutes explaining how you, you know, we're running some, you know, your hosting environment, you knowingly let it run for a year hosting somebody's bad guy server. Right, mm -hmm. right, exactly, exactly, mm. yeah. 
All right, gentlemen. Well, this was great fun, uh, so much so that uh, we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> we would love to have you back, Caleb. I swear. Dave, Dave just loves the fact that I called you a SCOTUS nerd, okay? because he wouldn't dare to oh, do that. I, but I say that. I say, Are you kidding me? I say that in, in true respect for what you do. Ben. Let's just say I may or may not be logging into SCOTUS blog every Thursday at 10 a.m. like a proper SCOTUS nerd, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I am proud of it. Uh, and if there are other SCOTUS nerds out there, wear it proudly on your sleeve. That's, That's what right. I have to say. I think say. you need a T-shirt. I think yeah. so too. Yeah, maybe we can uh, maybe we can manufacture some of those, Dave. SCOTUS Cyberwire SCOTUS nerd. nerd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That could be a new vertical for us. There we yeah, go. The SCOTUS nerds. We'll corner the market on SCOTUS nerd T-shirts. But Caleb, I love your questions. Uh, they're thought-provoking. We'd love to have you back and, and do well, this again. Well, uh, let's all, let's also mention this, right? I mean. There's a lot more of these things that drive operators nuts. And, you know, if they've got more questions, drop us a, you know, drop us a note on LinkedIn and let's talk about it some more. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. All right. So the first of many, we're going to make this a a regular thing here. Caleb Barlow is the CEO of Silete. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. All right, well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.